following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Alright, this morning we'll be looking at Mark chapter 4, verses uh, 12 through 17. Uh, the kingdom at hand, uh, talking about uh, what it means to be... Uh, part of the kingdom of heaven, what, it, what, what Jesus meant when he said, the kingdom is at hand. Uh, so let's uh, read uh, from Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to turn there in your Bibles. Now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he, that is Jesus, withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, What exactly is the kingdom of heaven? This actually is a major theme. and In fact, some would argue is the main theme of the book of Matthew. Uh, uh, In the the gospel of Matthew, the, the phrase kingdom of God is used four times. The phrase kingdom of heaven is actually used 38 times. And together, that, that equals about half of its use in the whole New Testament. So it is a big deal in the book of Matthew. Uh, and, and so here we see that Jesus um, comes, and, and he, uh, Matthew sums up the, the whole content, uh, the whole theme of Jesus preaching in this one statement. He came preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, just, just a side note, the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are the same thing. God lives in heaven. Uh, Matthew probably preferred using the term kingdom of heaven because he was writing to um, very strict Jews, people who had come to Christ uh, probably, but they were still pretty locked into Judaism, and they were very reluctant to use the name Yahweh. Right. So if you're a Jew, you didn't, you didn't speak the name of Yahweh. You just called him the guy upstairs. They had other synonyms that they would kind of go around. And one of those synonyms for the kingdom of God, so they didn't have to use it, they would call it the kingdom of heaven meant the same thing. Um, and, and that's the message that, that we saw John uh, preaching, right? Exact same message. John came preaching, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus comes and his whole message, his, all of his preaching and teaching is summed up in that same thing. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, in, in Matthew 4.23, uh, we'll see next week, um, but same thing. He says, and, and Jesus went through all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. It's interesting, in our, in our era, we, uh, we understand the gospel, and oftentimes we will talk about preaching the gospel. But it's interesting, uh, in, in Matthew's time and in Matthew's thought, there was no such thing as just preaching the gospel. Okay? Jesus did not just preach the gospel. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. And one of the things that we want to see is how we put those two things together. Um, and, and it's hard for us, and one of the reasons that we preach the gospel and not so much the gospel of the kingdom, 
is that we just don't get kingdoms anymore. Right? The honest truth is that I would, I would bet 99% of us uh, don't really live in a kingdom. I mean, an earthly kingdom, right? Now, some of you who are Thai will say, oh, we live in the kingdom of Thailand. And it's true, it's called the kingdom of Thailand. But the influence of, of democracy and, and other ideologies have really changed even places like um, Thailand and even, God forbid, you know, uh, the UK, for those of you who are from the UK, that they're actually not really kingdoms anymore, right? Uh, their monarchs don't really rule as sovereign rulers anymore. And so for us, this whole concept of a kingdom is difficult because we are far more influenced by democracy and those kind of thoughts. And so we don't really uh, resonate well with the idea or concept of a kingdom. So this morning we want to talk about what is a kingdom. And it's important because it really lays the, sets the stage for the whole rest of the book of Matthew. If you really want to understand uh, the Gospel of Matthew, we need to understand it in terms of, of kingdom life and what Jesus meant when he said the kingdom is at hand. And as we go forward, we will see and uh, it will unfold more and more. But we want to t- today kind of lay a foundation of kingdom thinking so that as we go through the book uh, from here, it will make more sense. Uh, and specifically... Uh, a lot of misunderstanding about this idea of the kingdom at hand. What exactly did Jesus mean and, Paul and John when they said the kingdom is at hand? Does that mean it's almost here? Uh, when does it arrive? Did it, did it already arrive? Did we miss it? Are we still waiting? Right? Those are the questions. This idea of uh, the kingdom at hand, if we look at it in terms of it being almost here, can cause a lot of confusion for us. And I think, uh, as we'll see, it, uh, we'll see why it, it's confusing for us. Um, and there's a sense that, well, Jesus kind of brought it, but not really. And it really doesn't come till Jesus comes back. And so, yeah, there's a kingdom, but it's mostly irrelevant to us. Because it's going to come someday, long after I'm dead and gone. And so, we get this idea that the kingdom is not really something that impacts our life here and now today. But as we will see, Jesus, what Jesus meant by the kingdom in hand is very different than how we may perceive it. Uh, it is something that matters to our life here and now. And it is something that is for us, should be for us, a present reality. So let's jump into the passage and let's start back up just a little bit to get the back, uh, backdrop behind this phrase. Um, it says, Now when he had heard that John had been arrested... Uh, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. A couple of important things about this, this phrase. First, um, Jesus, uh, John's arrest uh, really marked the end of, of John's ministry. And that's significant because John was Jesus' forerunner. Right? So it would be difficult for Jesus to really start his ministry full on as long as John's around. Because right? uh, the, the forerunner and the, the, what he's leading up to can't really overlap. So... Uh, in God's timing, it wasn't that Jesus was necessarily waiting, but in God's timing, uh, John's arrest really marked for Jesus that uh, the time was now here for him to start his full-on ministry. Um, but it's also important to note that, um, that Jesus was at that time in Judea. Okay, so Judea was the region around Jerusalem, and it's really the most Jewish of places. Like if you were a Jew of Jews, you were a Judean. In fact, that's where the word Jew comes from. It means 
a, a resident, a person of Judea. Um, could be of the tribe of Judah, but uh, at that point other tribes lived in Judea. And uh, the focus of all that was Jerusalem. So if you were a real Jew, if you were a hardcore hardliner, you, you were all about Judea. Right? And there were other regions like Samaria, but we know they were all you know, mixed race people who didn't really count. And then there were outlying regions like Galilee. Right? And so Jesus was in Judea during the time of John. And in fact, it kind of implies that he was doing some kind of ministry. He was, he was around, and we'll see next week when he calls the disciples. They, they knew of him. Uh, he didn't just drop onto the scene unknown. So Jesus had been around and he was probably doing things either kind of in coordination with John or in, in a similar region. Um, but when, when uh, John is arrested, Jesus makes an intentional choice to withdraw from Judea and to relocate himself in Galilee. And specifically, as we see uh, the, the quote from Isaiah, that it's not just Galilee, but it's Galilee of the Gentiles. Right? Now, what is Galilee of the Gentiles? Um, where Jesus goes to preach this message of uh, the kingdom of heaven at hand. Um, uh, what, what does he mean by that? And what, what does all this move uh, imply for the kingdom? It's important to understand that Jesus' choice of, of, of specifically uh, Capernaum and Galilee uh, has everything to do with the kingdom and the nature and kind of kingdom he is bringing. Right? Jesus chose Capernaum as his center or hub of ministry. Uh, and he, he did that by relocating himself from Judea. Right? So it wasn't that just Jesus decided, well, it's time to do ministry, and he started ministering where he was. He, he moved. He went through. He went to a place, and there was purpose behind that that explained the nature and purpose of his kingdom. Uh, and what's significant to note is that he does not locate his center of ministry in Jerusalem or Judea. Right? What was Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem uh, was, first of all, the city of David, the very center of, of messianic expectation. Like, it, like it, it would make sense for Jesus to go to Jerusalem if he wants to proclaim himself as Messiah. Right? But, but he doesn't do that. Uh, Jerusalem was also the political center of Israel. Now, of course, uh, in Jesus' day, that didn't mean what it did in David's day because uh, the Jews uh, did not have sovereign rule over their own country. Uh, so it wasn't like the capital of Judea in that sense that it was the, the national capital. It was uh, held and controlled by Rome. But it was the place where the Jewish leaders, the Jewish council, the high priests met and made the decisions they could with the authority that they had under Rome. It was the place that was the center of what political power they did have. So if you're a, a Messiah who wants to uh, take over and, and restore the, the, the nation, the logical place is Jerusalem, not Capernaum. Right? Uh, Jerusalem was also the religious center. It's the place where the temple was. It's the place where every single Jew, whether they were in Judea or or Galilee, or as far away as Rome and, and far-reaching reach, places, when they wanted to come and really worship God, they would come to Jerusalem to the temple. Right? So if you're trying to set up a, a religious center of teaching religious truth, where would you go? Not Capernaum. Right? You would go to Jerusalem. 
But Jesus doesn't do that. Uh, he does not set up his home base in a strategically Jewish location. Instead, it says he goes to Galilee of the Gentiles. Not just Galilee, but Galilee of the Gentiles, right? Now, uh, just to be clear, Galilee was not uh, 100% Gentile. In Jesus' day, it would have been about 50% Jews and 50% uh, Gentiles. It had at one time been uh, part of David and Solomon's kingdom when it was uh, fully Jewish or uh, predominantly Jewish, but through the exiles and wars and battles and losses, at one point all the Jews had left. And uh, a couple hundred years earlier during the Hasmonean reign, uh, the Jews uh, went back into that area. But, it, but it, was, it was known as a place that had a high concentration of Gentiles. Um, and and Jesus', Jesus ministry, just to be clear, Jesus' ministry is clearly and predominantly to Jewish people. So even though he is located in Galilee of the Gentiles, Jesus' ministry is, is focused on, on, on Jewish people, on bringing, and we'll see some stories in the Gospel of Matthew that kind of highlight that truth. Um, but it, it's significant because it is a statement about the kind of kingdom he is bringing. He is bringing a kingdom for the nations, not just the nation of Israel, right? And it foreshadows what will come after Jesus' resurrection, as the gospel is a gospel for the nations, and as God calls and sends Paul and others and Peter to the nations, right? So, um, another thing about this region is it was it was quite rural. Jerusalem was the leading city, and leading cities, as we know even our own day, are places of wealth. Uh, a place of highly educated people. It's where the best universities and centers of learning are. It's where power and influence is, right? Um, Jesus goes uh, first to Nazareth, and it's interesting that he doesn't stay in Nazareth. Nazareth was a bit too rural, right? So Jesus is a bit strategic, right? He, he, he picks, not Nazareth, because it was too far out of the way. It was too rural. Uh, and he goes to Capernaum. But Capernaum was, uh, was not a major place, and if you know much about Israel, uh, there's the Sea of Galilee, and on the northern end uh, is Capernaum. And a little ways around the, the lake was the city of Tiberias. Now, Tiberias was a city. It was under Roman rule. Herod had a palace there. Uh, he doesn't pick Tiberias. He picks Capernaum, a fishing village of maybe a thousand people. Um, these were not wealthy people. They weren't necessarily extremely poor, but... but these were not wealthy people. And, and the, the, the bottom line is, nobody important lived in Capernaum. It's not where you went to rub shoulders with powerful and important people. Right, so Jesus was strategic, but his strategy had nothing to do with uh, warming up with Jewish leaders or finding influential Roman uh, or even Herod or Pilate. Right? That's not how his kingdom worked. Instead, he chose a place full of a poorer, common, everyday people. That's what Capernaum was. Everyday people lived in Capernaum. Everyday people lived in the villages around the Sea of Galilee. Fishermen, uh, people who had olive groves or who, who, who cultivated uh, vineyards. <coughs> um, but it is strategic. Um, Capernaum, uh, because it's on the Sea of Galilee, uh, made travel easy. Uh, they could get on a, a, a boat and sail across, and it saved a lot of walking. So there was some strategic things there. It was also a crossroad of some trade routes. 
Uh, it was central to Galilee where uh, many towns and villages could be reached in a day's walk. It was a good spot. Um, but it's, it's significant why Jesus chose this place. And, and Matthew uh, highlights this, the, the meaning of it in a prophecy from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 is what he quotes. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them a light has dawned. Um, and this is what's most significant of all. It was dark for a couple reasons. It was dark because it was, it was far away from, from Jerusalem. Uh, the Israelites may have thought of Jerusalem as being kind of the, the light in the center of darkness, um, the place where their religious center was and where there was truth, where the teachers and the rabbis and the scholars and the priests were. Uh, Galilee was, was far from that. Right? And there were, uh, uh, there were some Pharisees, there were some religious people there, but it wasn't known for its teaching. But more importantly, Isaiah highlights that it's dark because it's the land of the Gentiles. And so the Gentiles were completely outside of, of Israel, outside of the teaching, outside of the truth and, truth and light that God had revealed through Moses and the prophets. Um, a light has dawned in the land of darkness. Uh, he calls it the, the people living in the regions of the shadow of death. And that's, uh, that's a descriptive of where his kingdom has come. To a people who are lost in darkness, who are living in the shadow of death. Right? That's where Jesus chooses to locate his center of ministry. And it says everything about his kingdom. Jesus is bringing a kingdom that comes by grace not by law, because he is offering it and extending it to the nations apart from Judaism. Right? Uh, of course, we, we, we need the whole rest of the New Testament to fill in the blanks on that one. right? But we can see implied in this prophecy, Jesus is coming to bring light to the nations, light to those lost in darkness. And it comes through Jesus and his cross, not only to the nation of Israel, but to all the nations, right? That's his plan. That's, in fact, that's God's eternal plan. Uh, and we see that it's his eternal plan because he prophesied it back in the day of Isaiah, right? Which, by the way, this is the same passage that we uh, read a few verses later in, in, in verse 6 of Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth forevermore. Right, so it's important to see this great messianic prophecy foretold that this Messiah would be arriving, he would be the light dawning, not in Jerusalem, but in Galilee of the Gentiles. Um, and so Jesus fulfills prophecy, but he wasn't fulfilling prophecy just to check off a box. Oh yeah, I'm supposed to live in Galilee, okay? I, I've got to check that off. No. It's, it's strategic, right? It's communicating truth about God's kingdom. Praise God, Jesus did not center his ministry in Jerusalem. Right? If he had, 
it would have changed the character of what Christianity is today. It would mean you and I would still be going to the temple. And I would not be Pastor Tim. I would be High Priest Dunham or something. I don't know how that works. But no, actually, I wouldn't because I'm not Jewish, right? I would be, I'd just be whatever, right? So Jesus is strategic, right? It means something and it has implications about his kingdom. And real briefly, his, the implications of the kingdom are first that it would not be centered in, in religion and certainly not in the religion of the Jews at the temple, right? Another implication, the kingdom at this point is not political or national. Of course, Jesus and and Scripture is clear that one day uh, the the, the nation of Israel will will be restored. Jesus will come back. He will rule on David's throne and it will be political. And the kingdoms of this earth will come under his rule and authority and dominion. But at this point, that's not uh, what the kingdom is. Right? And Jesus was clear that that's not the, the full nature of his kingdom. It's more than that. Um, and this is where we get concerned, right? We're waiting for Jesus' return, and we have this notion that the kingdom can't come until it's political, until it's a place. But Jesus is clear that uh, he brought his kingdom to Gal- Galilee to a place that was not political, that had nothing to do with governments or institutions or centers of power, Right? It implies that God's kingdom is not concerned with the kind of things we often think of in terms of kingdom. Things like wealth and power and important people of great learning. Right? Um, Jesus brought his kingdom first and foremost to fishermen. Right? Now this is good news for us. Because it means this kingdom belongs to common everyday people. Right? We as everyday people... Uh, without great power or wealth or importance in the world's scheme, can be part of his kingdom. Um, there's a kingdom of everyday people, from the dirt poor and educated, uneducated fishermen and sinners, even in a, a very mundane fishing village like Capernaum. Um, it implies that the kingdom is available to all who will enter. You don't have to be Jewish or be a certain kind of person. And in fact, it implies that the kingdom is ultimately a kingdom of grace, that it's available to us through Christ. And all who will come and enter into it through Christ are invited to come, as many of the parables we'll see as we go through the book imply. Right? It's, it's out there for us to enter. Um, so... Uh, that's, that's a little bit of the backdrop and it sets up the stage for what the kingdom is. But let me dig a little bit deeper into this concept of kingdom. Because as I said, it's, it's hard for me to wrap my head around and, and I think it is hard for most of us. What, what is a kingdom? What is the kingdom of heaven? If it's not a political entity, if it's not a, a government or a nation, if it's not a place, uh, what exactly is it? Um, Well, as we've said before, uh, it is ultimately the eternal rule of God. Okay, and in in Scripture, the word uh, kingdom really could better be uh, translated, not not kingdom as in a place or a nation, but the the rule of the king. That's really what the word implies. It's about the rule of the one in charge. Um, uh, That's what a kingdom is. It's the effective rule a person has. So the, the truth is, God created you and I as kings of kingdoms. 
Uh, right? You and I have the power to have some effective rule. In other words, there's some things that we get to decide and, and it works out that way. Now, not everything, right? But you, you, you have rule over some things. You have rule, the Bible tells us, over your own tongue. So if you say something stupid, it's your fault, right? It's, it's you, are, you are Lord over your tongue. And everything that comes out of your mouth, you're responsible for. You are master of it, right? Nobody else puts those words in your mouth. Uh, even though uh, you, may, you may want to blame somebody else, you can't, right? We make choices. We have rule. Now, our rule is quite limited, <laughs> Uh, as I was reminded, reminded of this last night at 10 o'clock at night when, you know, close by they're having a party. And in Thailand, that means the music is cranked up, blaring loud. And I didn't go to the party, but I'm guessing there were eight people there. But the person there who, who paid for the band to come loved this band, and he wanted to share it with the whole community. And so there's probably a 10-kilometer radius where we all got to enjoy this music. Um, but I wanted, in, what I wanted is I wanted silence and quiet, right? But uh, in that realm, on that night, last night, my will was not effective. His will won. And so I got to enjoy his music. Uh, praise God for that. Um, so, so, so it's the rule of God. Now, in the history of Israel, uh, for the Israelites, what this, what this meant is that God... Uh, called them out as a nation and ordained them and set them up as a physical nation where God was to rule. And then eventually along came Saul and David and Solomon and there was this monarchy and it was a political kingdom. It was a place and it was a nation. But the important part of it was that it was a nation under God where God's rule was governing or ruling the nature of those people, how they lived. They were to be a holy people. And we saw this as we looked through Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers. The nature of that kingdom that God was in charge of. Um, but uh, that, that went well for a while, but in time the kings became worse and worse and worse. And eventually we know that they were, that the nation ended, that the Israelites were drug off into exile and captivity, and the monarchy ended. Uh, so uh, so that, that meant they had to change their idea of what the kingdom of God was. Uh, and, and at that time in Israel's history, they began to see it not as a, a place or a political entity, but as an allegiance of faithful individuals. So they recognized that those who were still individually faithful to God and his covenant were still part of his kingdom. Right? Even though they didn't have a land, they didn't have a king, uh, they may have been living in Babylon or Assyria, but they could be faithful to God and they could be part of his, king, his kingdom rule by their faithfulness to him. Uh, but of course, they did look forward to the Messiah, and the Old Testament looks to a Messiah who will restore that kingdom. Um, and, uh, but we, we have to see that when Jesus says here that he came preaching, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that he's not necessarily talking about that kingdom. In part, he is. And certainly he is the great king who sat on the throne of David and he will come back and he will restore that kingdom. But we have to understand that um, seeing the kingdom only in those terms is to limit and make God's kingdom much smaller than what it was ever intended to be. God's kingdom is more than Israel. Okay, do we understand that? God's kingdom is greater than his rule 
over the monarchy of David. In fact, even the Jews understood this. Um, They understood that God's kingdom was an eternal kingdom and his rule and his reign was much greater than over Israel. Right? Uh, So if you have your Bibles, uh, or we have it up on the screen, look at Psalm 145. And actually the last five Psalms uh, all look at God's rule over his eternal kingdom. Right? Uh, Psalms 145, though, is the most specific, and I'm going to read some parts of it. Uh, Notice these words. He says, I will extol you, my God and King, right? And bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. Is he talking here about his greatness only over Israel? He's talking about God's greatness over all the universe. Right? God is not a local God who lives only in Jerusalem. Right? The Israelites understood that God reigned in the heavens. He rules over the universe. His greatness is unsearchable. Right? Uh, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. And and in Scripture, these mighty acts would comprise all of creation and all that God does to to govern the universe, to send the rain and the crops and the sun, to send earthquakes and storms, that God is sovereign over these things, right? This is God's kingdom. What does God rule over? Well, the universe, right? We believe God created the universe and he rules over every part of it, every star, every supernova, every nebula, every molecule and atom. God rules over it all. So if God's kingdom is his rule, God rules over everything. And later on in in verse 8, he describes us. He he describes what God's rule looks like. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he made. Here's the thing. If God is ruling it, if God has the power to decide if, if kingdom means I have control over something, he can't be good to everything unless he's sovereign over it. Right? If God wants to bless something, God says, let there be light, he gets his way. Right? He gets his way, and there is light. If he wants to provide for the fish of the sea, he provides and he gets his way. Right? He's ruler over it all. Um, All your works shall give thanks to you, Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds, the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. So here's the thing. When when the kings of Israel uh, were taken in captivity and exile to Babylon and Assyria... Did God's rule end? No, right? God's still in control. He says your dominion and your rule never ends. Your kingdom never ends. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you to give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. Right? In this we see... uh, 
quickly, I'm just going to highlight this real quickly, three things about what it means for God to rule, for him to have a kingdom. First, uh, he does govern it. He is sovereign over it. Um, he does get his way. Right? When God speaks, when God acts, when God moves, uh, he is sovereign. And we never have to worry about God's plan failing because uh, he, he is sovereign over it. Uh, but we also know that God in his sovereignty has allowed other kingdoms. When God created uh, man in, in the garden in, in Genesis 1, he told Adam and Eve, I have created you in my image and I have appointed you to do what? To rule over the animals and the plants that I have created. Um, he gave us... Uh, the power and authority to be rulers over our own kingdoms. Right? God also in his sovereignty has allowed um, Satan a measure of his own autonomy. Uh, Satan rules the kingdom of darkness. Um, now, something to understand about both those kingdoms, both our kingdoms and Satan's, is that God is still sovereign over them. So we see when Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery... Right? His brothers meant it for evil. They were not uh, trying to do God's will. They were doing their own evil uh, will and intentions and plans. But Joseph saw at the end of it that God's hand was in it and that God was sovereign over it. And that where they meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Right? So God doesn't lose control by giving some control to us or even to Satan. Right? His plan and purpose from the beginning was that our little kingdoms would be in alliance or alignment with him. That we wouldn't rule apart from him, but we would rule under him. We would be his caretakers of what he had created. Because we know that in Adam, uh, all the human race, as our representative head, in Adam we all chose not to align with God, but to align instead with Satan and the kingdom of darkness. Um, and so from that time on, we have been ruling our little kingdoms in defiance of God, right? We, and, and that's at the root of all the problems we see in the world today, right? Kingdoms where people are exercising their own rule and authority and they're playing super loud music at 10 o'clock at night and that is not God's will. I'm telling you right now, right? It's not God's will. Right? And there's conflict because our kingdoms don't agree. Because I want my way and you want my way, you want your way, and our ways don't agree. So that's a problem in every marriage. It's a problem between parents and children. It's a problem between nations and leaders. Our, 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 our kingdoms cannot align with each other because they do not align with the ultimate sovereign Lord and King who's God. Right? And so uh, we live uh, in darkness. Right? We live outside of the guiding light of his truth that would make our kingdoms work and thrive. And instead we have become slaves of Satan and of darkness and of death. Uh, and so, um, so we need to pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's kingdom prayer, right? May your kingdom come. May your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. Um, but God is, is ruling. And, and if we come into the kingdom, it means we bring our life under God's rule. Right? 
We put ourselves under his rule. Um, second thing about the kingdom is it's not just about God being in charge. Like if it ended there, it, it would sound like a dictatorship where we just become his slaves, but that's not true. God is also a king who cares for his creation. And the kingdom is all about the care of the king. And we see that in this psalm where he talks about um, providing, caring. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Right? It's, it's the role of a king to protect and provide for those in his kingdom. And so to be in God's kingdom means to fall under all of its protection and care and blessing. Um, third thing is uh, kings, uh, and if you think about it in human terms, kings and kingdoms are all about extending and expanding their kingdom. Right? Uh, they want to grow their kingdom. And God is no different. God wants to rule everything. And unlike all the others who do it selfishly, God does it because he's a good king who knows his care and goodness can only bless those who are under his dominion. So God's heart is to extend his kingdom. His mission is to spread it so that all things come under his, his, his rule. But he never does that alone. Kings always enlist soldiers to go fight with them. And so it is with us. God calls us to mission with him, to extend his kingdom, to work in and through us, to spread his kingdom. Right? So, so hopefully that gives us a picture a little bit of what God's kingdom is. It is his rule over our life individually. Uh, it is his care over us personally and over our families and over our ministries. And it is uh, him inviting us into fulfill his work with him of growing his kingdom. So here our slogan at CCF is uh, love God, love people, build his kingdom. Now, of course, we don't do this on our own. Right? It's like we do it by ourselves. We do it through his power and through his help. One last thing we need to look at, though, before we close is what does Jesus mean when he says the kingdom is at hand? Okay, we're invited to this kingdom. It's, it, it is accessible through Jesus. But what does he mean that the kingdom is at hand? Um, uh, does it mean that it's coming soon? Well, there is a sense in which that's true. When Jesus returns, he will finally uh, dominate all things. He will vanquish every foe and every enemy. He will change the way governments and politics work. Right? And all the fighting that we see now is, is going to end and there will be peace because Jesus will rule with full and final authority. And you will either align with him and come under allegiance to him or you will be in big trouble because right? he will not tolerate rebellion right? as, he, as he does now. Uh, but if we only see his kingdom in, in that terms, at hand therefore means that kingdom, his kingdom is, is at hand, but we still are waiting. And we could be waiting a very long time. Right? Probably not in our lifetime. And I don't think that's what Jesus meant here. Right? He comes preaching a kingdom that he is communicating to them here and now. So what does at hand mean? Well, I think it means that it is available. We have access to it here and now. Right? 
Uh, it is available for any who want you to come and enter it. Before we had no access. What was the difference? Why did Jesus coming give us access to the kingdom? Well, because it's available only through him. Right? The only way we could enter the kingdom is through him, through what he accomplished on the cross. That's why it's the gospel of the kingdom. Right? It is through the cross and through Jesus' death that we enter into his kingdom. Until he came, uh, it was impossible. And Israel, the Israelites were living proof, right? living proof that they could never fully enter into the kingdom because they needed what only Jesus could provide through the cross. Uh, but the reality is that, um, that, that God's kingdom was already there. Right? The truth is that God's kingdom had always been there. God's rule and power over the universe was everywhere around them. What was lacking is they didn't have a way to access it. Right? Uh, we live in a day where we now have uh, the gift of internet access. Internet access, right? We have internet access. What does that mean? Well, it means that all around us, right, flying through this room right now, is all kinds of Wi-Fi and data signals, right? The internet is all around us, right? Uh, and if, 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 you, if you're on your phone right now, you can access it, right? Now, most of us who are paying attention to the sermon are not on your phone. Oh, no, I'm using my Bible. It's my Bible. Sure. Sure. Uh, we, we need that connection point, right? It can be all around us, but if we don't have some device to connect to it, that uh, we don't have access to it, right? And so that's a picture of, of the kingdom. It was there, but without Jesus, there was no access point. And just like with our phones, when you have access, you, you enter into that whole world of the Internet, all of its information and instant communication, and it's, it's, um, it's life-changing, right? It really is life-changing. Uh, I, I, I no longer get lost. And this has been healing in our marriage, right? Because before I would never admit that I was lost, I was just taking a longer route. And my wife would say, why don't you stop and ask for directions? She might as well have said, I hate you. You're evil, right? Stop and ask for directions. Why would I do that, right? It would mean I don't know something. But I know. I know where I am. I am not lost. I'm just not quite exactly sure how to get where I'm going, right? Well, the Internet has, 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 has transformed that because now I just follow the instructions on the map and I can pretend I know where I'm going even though I'm just following my phone, right? It's life-changing. Um, it has the power of instant communication and instant answers and instant information, right? Um, I think it's also important to note that uh, as we have yielded ourselves to it, as we have entered into its kingdom, I think the truth is our phones have become lord over our life at a large extent, right? Certainly for people in, who are in the world who are not thinking about this, you see it. I mean, I see people walking into walls, literally, right? Because they are so connected to their phone. Um, the number of deaths now attributed to Pedestrian accidents by people on their cell phones is staggering. People who walk in front of cars, right, because they're on their phone. Um, how, it's, how it's controlling us 
is something we should pay attention to, right? We have become part of this kingdom and we have given it lordship over our life. And for, for many of us, our phones control us in ways that is not Christ-honoring, right? And we, we need to bring that under Christ's rule. We need to let him take charge of how we use our phones and our devices. Well, it is a point to illustrate that the kingdom is at hand. Right? In Jesus, we now have an access point to what was always there before, the rule of God over the universe. Now through Jesus, we can enter his kingdom and, and he gives us a new heart that is receptive to God's rule so that now we become willing participants of his kingdom. Right? We, we want to do his will. And it's not that God wants to obliterate our will, our will so that we no longer have one. Instead, he wants to redeem and restore it so that we want to do what he wants. Right? I love worship. Right? When we come together for worship, we come as free agents, uh, but we're led by the people up front. But we each individually get to pick how we do this. Like some of you think you can't sing very well, and God bless you, you're probably right. And so maybe you're not going to blare it out because you're just, you don't want to hurt the person next to you, you know. But you want to praise God. So you clap your hands and you, you raise your hands or you close your eyes. Or maybe you just don't care and you just, you're going to make a joyful noise, right? You're going to do that. We control those things. Maybe some of you want to sing melody and somebody want to sing harmony parts, right? And the person up front's not saying, you know, Mike, you need to sing tenor, you know. You need to sing soprano. You need no. We we choose right, but but we're all on mission together to lift up God's name and praise Him, to celebrate Him joyfully, and so the joining together of all of our wills in one purpose under God's uh, God's will, God's purpose, we we do amazing things together, right? And that's what God's vision is for His kingdom. He wants to rule us, but He doesn't want to make us puppets. He wants us to be people who are still people who have free will and free agents in the world who choose to worship and serve him. Right? We choose to put our life under his rule because we believe his way is best. So how do we do this? How do we enter into this kingdom? Well, Jesus says, it is, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? Entrance into the kingdom begins with Repentance. What is repentance? It is acknowledging that we are in darkness, that our life is a wreck on our own, that we are in the land of the shadow of death, and we need radical transformation if we are to be people of the kingdom. Um, it, is, it is the gospel and the kingdom. Those two things go together. Right? The gospel says we need our sins dealt with. Right? We need Jesus' redeeming work to cleanse us and wash us and take away our rebellion and our sin and give us a new heart. But that's not the end. That's just the beginning. Right? Through that, we enter into the kingdom. And we now have a power through Christ and through the cross to become uh, citizens and residents of this kingdom where we begin to take on its characteristics and traits. Right? Uh, when we live in a kingdom, when we live in a certain place, we, we, we begin to take on the character and nature of that place, right? Uh, Mike, Mike, Mike Christian, he's lived in Thailand now. Mike and Judy, how long have you guys lived here? 
33 years old. Johannes, how long have you lived here? His whole life. His whole life, right? Those guys are both like more Thai than they are anything else. It's scary, right? They just think like Thai people. If you want to know about Thailand, they're good examples, right? Why? Because they've lived here so long, it's just rubbed off on them, right? And they, they, they become more and more Thai. And that's true for all of us the more we live here. Well, so it should be with God's kingdom. The nature of the king should start to rub off on its subjects so that we become more and more like him. And in fact, as we go through the rest of the book of Matthew, we will see that, that that's the goal. Right? Being in the kingdom means uh, conforming our life more and more to be shaped by kingdom values and kingdom truths. Right? Uh, to access kingdom power and to learn to live by the same power that Jesus exercised when he cast out demons and healed people. But those are the things available to us in the kingdom. Uh, so... Uh, I'm not going to talk about these, but let me just say these three things about the kingdom. Life in the kingdom means this. It means life with the king. We don't have to wait for that. When we enter the kingdom through Christ, we now have access to the king, and he invites us to live life with him. Are we living life, every part of it, in relationship with the king of kings, who rules over all things? To know him, to be with him. Secondly, life in the kingdom means living life by kingdom power. Uh, God intends for us to have a power uh, to overcome sin and to overcome the effects and consequences of sin in our life. We should be living uh, by a different kind of power that gives us victory and success that we could never experience before. And finally, life in the kingdom uh, is to be life-transforming. It should be changing who we are as a person so that we every day become more and more like the king as we take on his values. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.